Now, blessed Lord, we do come before you in the sweet name of Christ our Lord. Father, we are thankful for what we have already learned today, what we have been challenged with. We're thankful for the meal that has been set before us, the company, the fellowship. Lord, the communion of the saints, we are thankful for all that you have, Lord, allowed us to participate in on this blessed Lord's Day. We ask that you would bless this study, that you would continue to fill our minds with truths and shape our motivations, our intentions, Lord, to perform your will, uh, Lord, in in, in perfection, Lord, in exactness, in completeness, Lord, that we would be complete Christians, Lord, learning and growing in our love for you and in our love for truth and in our love for one another, the church, the body of Christ on earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's take a minute and let's read Psalm 5 together. I want to begin reading at verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, I will, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God that takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity, who destroy those who speak, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your temple, at your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy and make you and may you shelter them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. And this is the reading of God's word. Well, beloved, I hope the Psalms are becoming a delight to your heart as we looked at the last couple of Psalms addressing a morning devotion and evening devotion. Psalm 5 seems to be a more general exhortation to personal faith, devotion, the exercise of righteousness, but it also contains a very, uh, well peculiar characteristic that many Christians find hard to handle. And that is what the psalmist says about the wicked. Now, as we will, as we will take a look at what this psalm says about the wicked, we should keep in mind the context of the psalm. The psalm is a psalm that is a cry, if you will, a prayer, a devotion to God for protection. 
The psalmist is seeking God's protection. His trust is obviously in God. He's displaying that trust that he has in God by seeking God, as the text says in those first three verses, verse three, in the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. The psalm indicates that the psalmist has habituated himself to morning devotions. He is seeking God every morning. That's the picture. That's what we're to glean from this. The point in the psalm is that God has favor upon his righteous ones. He has favor upon them. There are those that God gives favor to, grace, mercy, compassion, and that grace, mercy, and compassion, my brothers and sisters, are sovereign, sovereignly given. They're sovereignly given, meaning that God chooses to give some grace and others not grace. He is sovereign in his giving of compassion and mercy and whatnot. And he gives and withholds. It's his to do. And the psalmist does not seem to have a problem with that. I know many contemporary Christians do. But let me ask you something. When, if, if we're part of those that struggle with thoughts, and I, and I confess, in my early Christianity, I struggled with such things. I wanted to reconcile these things in my own mind and heart. I, I wanted to understand is, is, you know, this sovereignty of God, is this an abuse? Is this a Christian idea? Does the Bible really teach the sovereign administration of grace? Where do I stand in that? Do I find it in the scriptures? And so I spent some of my initial years as a Christian learning these things, studying these things, and not just taking the people that I was sitting under their word for it, even though uh, I, I come out of a very man-centered background of, in my initial Christianity. I, I sat under churches that did not advocate the sovereignty of God, that were very much defensive against the sovereignty of God. And yet, the Lord moved me in that direction the Lord guided me in that direction just due to his word, just to what, the, what does the scripture say? And that was a real wrestling in my mind and heart. And I'm sure some of you may have a similar testimony that we come to the word of God. Remember, beloved, we are not to sit in judgment of the word of God. That's not our place. We sit in the place that the word judges us. We sit in the place where the word is impressed upon us and we figure out by the, the, the empowerment of the spirit where we are with that word. It gauges us. It, 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 it puts a measuring stick to our lives, to our doctrine, to our thoughts, to our emotions, and it judges us. And it lets us know where we are and how much we've grown or, or how much we've strayed from the truth. 
But remember, beloved, the word of God is a, a, a light, right, unto our path. It's a lamp. It shows us where we are, who we are, and it shows us where we're going and where we're heading, whether it's good or bad. It tells us these things. There are some encouraging words by authors that you would know, such as Charles Spurgeon. He offers these initial comments in the opening up of his commentary on this psalm. He says, there are two sorts of prayers, those expressed in words and those uttered in emotion, longings, desires, which abide in silent meditations. Words are not the essence, but the garment of prayer. And I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, would initially absolutely amen that, that there are two sorts of prayers. There's those prayers that we speak with our lips and our tongue and our voices, and then there's those prayers that we are burdened with in our hearts those emotions, those longings, those, those urges where we are silently crying out to God for relief or for protection or for understanding. Maybe if you're here this morning and you've not fully come to grasp with the sovereignty of God and how he feels about sin and the sinner and righteousness and holiness and worship, Maybe that's where you will be. Maybe you'll be in that place of sitting before the Lord and learning and saying, Lord, I trust you. You are trustworthy. I have confidence in you. Teach me these things. We certainly live in a want it, get it now generation. And we have for some time. This is not anything new. This has been going on all our lives. I mean, particularly the last 30, 40 years, it's been a very, very um, immediate satisfaction generation. I mean, remember, <laughs> I just use this example just because I kind of experienced it the other day. Y'all remember when we first, now the young people are not even going to be able to relate to this at all. But you know when, when, when the whole internet thing came out and you had AOL and you had to log in and it was like, you know, and it'd take 10 minutes to just get online. And that little thing would scroll and you all sitting there going, mm, the internet is so cool. It is so great. And you would wait for 10 minutes for that thing to hook up. You know, now it's like, instant if it's not hooking up we're going what's the problem you know we're smashing the button but look how that's affected us how the the advancement of that technology has affected our psychology and the way we think and and what we're willing to be patient with and that you we have to admit that we haven't yet determined how that's affected our normal living and our our you know, when we have questions and we bring our questions to the elders or to the pastor or to the leadership, you know, we almost want immediate answers. Now, I'm not saying they don't, we don't have some of those. 
But the point is, there are times, and this is where the Psalms really help us. Because the Psalms help us to learn how to be patient as a follower and a worshiper of God. Because God's not instant. God is and not at our beck and call. Right? He is and he's not. He is ready to hear. He is ready to listen. He is ready to enliven us with all the grace needed and necessary. Oftentimes, needed and necessary means waiting patiently on him to act or to give an answer to that prayer. That could take years. That could take years to come to fruit. And so we have to pull ourselves out of this sort of immediate gratification culture and remind ourselves of the real reality is that's just not the the larger portion of the world we live in, not when it comes to our maturing in the faith, not when it comes to our seeking God's face and answer to prayer, and and not when it comes with dealing with our enemies, like the psalmist is doing here. Another theologian and commentator talks about how the psalm really sort of unfolds in two larger portions. The first portion of it deals with verses one through seven, which will probably be able to cover those verses today and the other verses 8 through 12 at a later time. But yet, again, remembering it's a seamless thought, even though it's divided up into content, because verse 12, right, verse 12 or 11, 11 and 12 really, it sort of is the, the, the purpose statement Yes, it's a prayer of confidence. It's a prayer of devotion. But, but verses 11 and 12, it sets the theological groundwork for even coming to the Lord in the habit of prayer, right? But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy and may you shelter them. I mean, certainly the idea of refuge and shelter is protection, is protection. That the psalmist, even in a situation where his life may be in jeopardy, we don't know what the context is historically of the psalm. It would be any, any commentator would say it's speculation. We don't know if it's David and Saul, David and Absalom, David and someone else. We just don't know. We don't even know if it's exactly David. It could have been labeled that as it was formulated by Ezra the priest more than likely in putting the Psalter together. It's historically assumed to be a Psalm of David and that's what we will uh, for our sakes work with. But it is a Psalm of protection of the taking refuge in the Lord. Now it doesn't matter if there's a, a um, Uh, a cave to take refuge in, which David did. 
even though a cave was provided for he and his comrades to take refuge in and to shelter themselves, whether from the weather or from their enemies, who gets the praise for the shelter? The Lord does. And that's what Christian, listen, that's what a believer's mindset is. That's the Christian mindset. The Christian mindset is that God is the God of this world. He is providentially, sovereignly in charge. And even if I shelter in this cave or in this building or in this house or whatever the case may be, I will give praise to God for it, for providing that shelter. And thus I can say, I take shelter in the Lord. I trust him because he has provided for me. And notice in verse 11, the, mid, the middle stanza, the way it's organized in our Old Testament scriptures. Let them, that is who? Those who find shelter, let them what? Sing for joy. This is this act of outward devotion. Let them worship God. Let them be worshiping God. Let them plan to worship God. And then verse 12, for it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. The Lord has his favored ones. Can we deny it? Can we deny that God has placed his favor on some and not others? When we fall into that denial or when we fall into feeling the need to defend God's love, God's love, God's loving, I mean, we've, this, this need to address this possibility that this person that I'm talking to may think that God is somehow unloving, unsovereign, or, or uncaring, monstrous. And, you know, that's what the world says about God. He's a monster. I, I just read that headline this past week talking about how the the god of christianity is a monster horrible thought uh, i mean the, the horrible conception of what a, a god should be not surprising that those the the world See God that way? That, I mean, the psalm is, psalmist is dressing the enemies of not only the righteous, but of who? God. They're his enemies. And so we wrestle with this idea, but the psalmist doesn't have a problem with it. In fact, it is helping the psalmist express his devotion for not only should they sing for joy, but he says, Lord, you are the one who blesses the righteous man. Oh, Lord, you surround him with favor as with a shield. Lord, all of these graces that I'm experiencing and that the righteous experience are all because of your sovereignly administered favor 
So you can tell that the the psalmist in verses one through three not only are speaking of his trust and confidence in God, but the reason it's important and what we see in the psalm is his well-developed theology. If you look at the first three verses, and I'm going to get to this whole idea of the sovereignty that's sandwiched in the middle of this psalm. I'm gonna, I'm a, I hope I get to it before we run out of time. But notice his, his, his grounded theology, his knowledge is, is on display in verses one through three. Notice what he says. Give ear to my words, O Lord, Jehovah. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. My king and my God. He uses three different names for God in these opening verses. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer and you, my prayer to you and eagerly watch. I mean, the psalmist is giving us an, an insight into his well-developed understanding of who he worships. Who God is to him. He's Jehovah. He's my salvation. He's my covenant God. He's the one who has sovereignly been gracious to me. He's the one who has come and delivered me. And he's the one that I take refuge in. He is El, E-L. That's a name for God. And the name for God in El is the God of power. He's all-powerful. God is all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's king. He's my king, but he is the king. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's a covenant God. I mean, this is a a, a well-rounded understanding of, well, his God. And, And that certainly begs the question, for us to consider how do we pray? How do we call upon God? How do we use the names of God? Do we use different names for God? Do we understand that God has many names, many names, over a dozen names that he calls himself? Why do you think God would express and reveal himself with many names? Because he is so complex and vast and majestic, one won't do it. So he is known and he has revealed himself with many names. I know some of your study Bibles may have a list of those names. Many study Bibles do. Uh, You can find an index usually in there that will give you a list of of those names used of God. And and you would, it's an education to go through that list. But this confidence and trust is in this God who is able, this God who is real. He He is the God of covenant He's the God of grace and mercy. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who has all power. And this is the one that he has habituated himself to. Notice, in the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. This is a habit. This is not a one-off thing. God is real 
And the psalmist is saying that my confidence and trust in God is on display every morning. In the morning, I call upon my God and I use various names for God. Displaying that I know him, that I have read the scriptures that reveal him. Notice what else he says about God in verse four. Intimating, he knows God, he knows something about God. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. He knows something about God. This is not something that I don't know how many Christians could even make such a claim. I think many Christians would say, I don't know. (laughs) I just know he saved me. But I don't know anything else. That doesn't sound like this this believer, does it? It doesn't sound like the one who is chosen of God to write these words and it be inspired scripture to us. Authoritative. What is the word of God? It's it's useful, right, for instruction, rebuke, exhortation, training in righteousness. I mean, I think we can say, sovereignly speaking, that the intention of the Holy Spirit was that we might emulate the psalmist to habituate ourselves to acts of personal devotion, to habituate ourselves to a study of theology and the person and work of God so that we too could make statements like he makes in this where he says, for you are not a God that takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. That's emphatic. This is emphatic. This is not wishy-washy theology. In verse five, he says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Now that's the verse that many Christians stumble over. How would modern Christians read that verse? Let me try it. Let me try it. You hate the sin, but love the sinner. Is that how it would be read by many Christians? They would take that verse and rip it out and replace it with something that sounds better to the, to the righteous man's ears, righteous woman's ears, or to the ears of the sinner, the, the wicked, not the sinner. We, we, we all fall into that category, but the wicked. Now, the wicked in this psalm is, is not just an unbeliever because there are elect that are unbelieving that have not come to salvation in history and time yet. So the wicked in the psalm are those that are determined, dedicated, and intentional in destroying God, in destroying the kingdom of God. The enemies of God are out to destroy him, like Satan, who is the ark, enemy, the chief adversary of God and his people. 
So we're not just talking about, you got to be careful. It's not just talking about, you know, any who are unbelieving and you go out there and go, wicked, God going to kill you now. You don't know that. You don't know that. And you got to be careful how you handle these precious truths. But it does not take away or limit or in any way disparage the truth and the confidence and the trust and the knowledge that the psalmist has about who God is. For you are not a God that takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Look at Psalm 11 and verse 5. Look at verse four, for the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness and the, he loves righteousness and the upright will behold his face. It's another passage of scripture. So let me un help you understand what is happening here because I want to I accomplish one primary thing. Number one, I'm not going to defend God. I'm not defending God and his word. I'm agreeing with it. If there's anything that I don't like about the text, the, the, the issue is with what? Me. Is there anything I don't understand about the text? The issue is not with God. It's not with the writers. It's with me. So I approach it from that perspective if there's something that I don't understand, I have to pray for light. I have to pray for guidance. I have to pray for understanding. And I have to also be patient until I am taught these things or until I learn these things. Because again, God often not just takes his time, but accomplishes many things when he's training us up in righteousness. So he's not just always doing one singular thing. It's often many things at one time. So here's the thing. You say, well, let me, let's, let's look at some other passages of Scripture that help us with this one. Turn in your Bibles, turn back to Deuteronomy 5. And this is the same in Exodus 20. This is the, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the summary of the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And um, look at... At uh, verse 9, you shall not worship them. Now, this is in addressing the um, second commandment. He says, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So even in there, there's a distinction between those who hate me and those who love me. 
those whom receive judgment and those who receive favor. Does everybody see that? And again, you can find that text also in Exodus 20. Well, let's go to Ephesians 1. Now, this, is, this relates to what I said earlier, and that is there are uh, elect that are unbelieving at this moment. There are those that before the foundation of the world that God had elected that has not come sovereignly to faith yet because, well, God has planned that out. God has orchestrated that. Or, or God has predetermined that, if you will. He is going to, he orchestrates all things according to his will. So look at Ephesians and listen to Paul's words here. I'm just going to begin at verse three. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, there's a period there in your Bibles, right? You've got a period there, even though it's part of, it's, it's separated in the verses. But remember, the verses were not inspired. The breakup of the verses were not inspired. So now, so I'm gonna read verse four and five again. Hold up, so listen to it. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Oh, I'm sorry, back, let me back up. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, did everybody catch that? Those that he predestined. In what way, what motive were they predestined in? What was their intention? What was God's intention? That he loved them. It was love that moved God to predestine a people. And it says that the whole purpose of this was that predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will or his good pleasure, meaning that it just pleased God to do it. There was no other motivation that moved God to predestinate anybody to salvation other than this. The scriptures teach us that it just pleased God to do it. And then verse six tells us why. To his own praise and glory of, of what? His grace. What's grace? Unmerited favor unmerited, unearned favor. There's nothing anyone can do to earn this grace, to be rewarded this grace. This grace comes to all who have been predestined 
and it is sovereignly given and administered and God's love is the moving force behind it. And he says, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now look at even verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Now I'm just gonna stop there and I hope that helps you understand this, this concept of, of those that, who, who are the ones that are hated by God? Because God does hate. God does hate. How do we know this? Because the Bible says it. There is nothing earned or gained by, it's just what the, the, the scriptures, you hate all who do iniquity. Now, there's also, now let me say this. You can say, well, Pastor Stanfield, you're never going to win anybody to Jesus. You're never going to evangelize anybody by telling them God hates them. In fact, what you need to do is you need to say, listen, God loves you. He just hates your sin. Beloved, that is theologically impossible in a sense because where do those sins flow from? Those sins flow from the heart of that person. And let me say that the Lord has used me to lead many to Christ with this truth. Because God hates the sin. He hates the sinner. And if the sinner wants refuge, he needs to flee to Christ. He needs to flee to the strong tower that's named Jesus. He needs to seek God's favor. He needs to understand that it's not just my sins that God hates, but I too am at war with God and I must cast myself on his mercy. That's why when we go to the homosexual or we go to any of those protected classes of people in our culture, we tell them, God hates your sin. He hates you. You need to flee to him and seek refuge in Christ. He has offered up his son so that all who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Let me, let me just help you. Turn to John 3. We all, want, we all desire to be biblical. We all desire to be consistent in our theology and our handling of the word of God because here's the, at the end of the day, look, if I save you, you're hell bound. If, if I save you, I mean, if I persuade you, I convince you, I mean, I'm the one that is able to, to uh, you know, make you make a decision, you're not saved because Christ saves people. And Christ saves people with the truth. 
Christ is the one that takes the truth and penetrates the heart to bring conviction. Without an understanding of conviction, how can the mind inform the heart to flee to Christ? So we have to have truth. But notice, we all understand how important John, the chapter three of John is. Um, It contains that passage that many use and abuse in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we can all say amen to that. Just as Psalm 5 is part of the canon of scripture and is true, John 3 is part of the canon of scripture. And guess what? It's true. But notice verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's just in the same context of John 3.16. Notice two things about the, the, the Scriptures. Um, he who believes is synonymous with he who does not obey. That is, belief and obedience is synonymous. To believe God is to what? Obey God. To disbelieve God is to disobey God. And notice what, so keep that in mind. And of course, the psalmist is talking about these things. We'll move back there in just a second. He says, obey the, listen, but he who does not obey, believe the son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides. That's a present tense reality. The, why? Because the scriptures tell us that the sinner destroys himself. The sinner, the unrepentant sinner, the one who just continues to beat their head upon the wall of atheism, upon the wall of false religion, upon the wall that that I am the center of the universe, upon the wall of all of the secular and worldly humanistic lies. God's wrath abides on them because of their continuation of of deceit, self-deceit, hypocrisy, and sin. When Israel was going astray, the Old Testament prophet revealed how, oh, how Israel has destroyed thyself. What's this nation doing? It's not being enlightened. Are we being enlightened? Are we being set free? Are we being woke? Are we being progressive? No, we are destroying ourselves because of the abandonment of the reality that God is in this world as his. So let's turn back to Psalm 5 and let's see if we can encapsulate a concluding thought here. I'm going to read to you some commentary on verse 5. Notice the, the, the following verses. Verse 6. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Now, now notice the boastful 
The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Now, who are the boastful? The arrogant, the prideful. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. What's falsehood? Liars. Ones who twist the truth for their own evil purposes. We're not talking about misjudging where Publix is. We're not talking, you know, we're talking about lies. We're talking about misleading, intentional misleading and deceiving. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. What's bloodshed? Murders. Okay. What's deceit? Fraud. Fraud. Defrauding one another. Notice, but as for me, by, no, notice, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow down in reverence to you. What's this abundant loving kindness? This is the covenant mercies and compassion of God. This is his favor. This is his unmerited favor, his grace, beloved. It's the grace of God that is our greatest motivation to habituate ourselves to morning devotions. It's the sovereign, unmerited favor and grace and compassion of God here titled loving kindness that we haven't earned, that we cannot earn, that we're incapable of earning, that that motivate, notice what he says, as for me, he says, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow in reverence for you. That's worship. I was thinking about this the other day as I talked, you know, many people talk, you know, there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about the Lord's day. And while we have a moral commandment to worship the Lord at a certain time or on a certain day, and I have gone through the, the whole category as a pastor on why Christians have tried to tell me they don't have to keep that day of worship. That they don't, it's not a big deal. Here's the thing. The problem isn't with the Lord's day. The problem is the, the view of God. Problem in the Lord's day. <laughs> the problem is most Christians have such a small view of God and His love and His grace. Because if you had a large view of God's mercy and compassion and grace, you would say the same thing the psalmist is saying. I want to worship and bow down. There's also historical reference here that if I'm not able to be in God's house, I lament it. When David was out fleeing, he was unable to be in the temple. He longed to be in the temple. He wasn't saying, oh, look, I got a respite. <laughs> I got a vacation. No, I want to be in the temple. This, this tragedy, this trial is keeping me from the temple of my God. So what will I do? I will go out on that day and I will bow down toward the temple and I will worship God. You know, Islam kind of practices the same thing. You know where they turn in prayer? They turn to the east. They turn to their Mecca, to their 
holy place. We have our holy place too. It's God. He's our holy. He's our favor. He's our blessing. <laughs> the day, the, it's not the problem with the day. The problem is whether or not you have a small, unbiblical view of God or you have a large view of God because that's going to change everything. Listen to this commentator. His commentary on that God hates the workers of iniquity. He says, those who do great, those who greatly slander God, who teach that we will, that, that he will punish sin only because it is opposed to his law or will and not because it is opposed to his infinite, eternal, and unchangeable rectitude. That means they separate God's law from the person of God. So repugnant to God's nature is iniquity that he would not save even his elect except in a way that it should be fully and forever put away both the guilt and the stain of sin and bring all conceivable odium on transgressions to an end. Meaning the only reason God saves us as his elect is because he takes away our sin. Isn't that beautiful? He goes on. God would not even spare his son. Listen to this. God would not even spare his son when he stood in the place of sinners, lest he seem to agree with sin. Meaning, what happened on the cross when Christ bore the total penalty of our guilt and sin? He died. What does sin bring to the world? Death. Death to the person, death to the family, death to the culture, death to the nation. Nor is it merely some forms of sin. No, let me back up. He says, if he, could he cease to hate it? He would cease to be worthy of love and confidence. He's, the commentator says, if God could cease to hate sin and the sinner, he would be unworthy of your love and confidence. Nor is it merely some forms of sin that God abhors, but he hates all workers of iniquity. Nor does he hate sin in general. So some men profess to do, but countenance it in a detail, meaning, yeah, I sin, I have this problem, but it's not a major sin. The psalm, in that one phrase, God hates the workers of iniquity, solves the problem. It's not the little sins or the big sins, it's the sin. Are you... Have you been moved by the Spirit of God and the Word of God to abandon sin? Devote yourself to morning habit of worship. It, it, it doesn't have to be complex. The psalmist described his as groaning, moaning, calling, crying. You can do all those things. 
Sometimes you may sit in silence, but you're communicating to God. Elevate your view of God, beloved. Is it big enough? Is your view of God big enough? Does it encapsulate God's hatred for the sin and the sinner? Does it encapsulate the idea of protection? Only you can answer that. But remember how the psalm ends. But let all who take refuge, well, we could go to a couple of places, write this down in your Bibles or write this in your notes. This list of sins, you can find them in Galatians 5. You can find it in Revelation 22. Nothing's changed. Liars, murderers, defrauders, deceivers, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. The wicked are not going to heaven. Only those who have the favor of God and those who call upon him, those who worship him in righteousness and truth. And beloved, that could be all of you. That can be anyone who calls upon him. We're not discriminating. We are inviting all who don't know him to come to him and to confess their sins. Their sins are horrible in God's sight. And put their faith and trust in him. And now, verse 11 and 12, that we take refuge in God, sing for joy, let him be our shelter. Those who love your name may exalt in you, for it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. It's all God, it's all grace, it's all mercy, it's all compassion. It's all, as, as Ephesians 1 said, it's all to the praise and the glory of God's grace. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, we thank you for Psalm 5. Lord, we thank you for the meat of it the challenge that it presents to us, Lord, to consider the errors of so many around us today, even that we may have participated. I know at one time I did, that I would say such things. And so, Father, I'm thankful for the clarity of your word. I'm thankful for the correction of it. And, Lord, I pray that we would develop and hone and foster a larger view of God, a larger view of you. Lord, that when... That, that worshiping you is a, it's no issue. It's not a problem. Why wouldn't we want to worship you? Because we have your favor. You, you've motivated us, Lord. Your love and compassion and mercies, your covenant of grace, motivates us to seek you and to desire you above all things. And above all people. So help us, O oh Lord, to... Be strong in our convictions and help us to practice that daily devotion of, of 
of confidence, of trust, of prayer and worship, and even singing of praises in our hearts and our minds. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.